Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If we don't take the opportunity to use adventure to improve our well-being, we're missing a golden opportunity. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this conversation with Belinda Kirk. Belinda is an explorer and as of recently an author. She's the founder of Explorers Connect which is a social enterprise that connects people with adventurous opportunities and other people planning expeditions. In 2010 she captained the first all-female rowing team to circumnavigate Britain non-stop and has an expedition history that spans 26 years. I'll spare you me reading that list, but it's long and it's impressive. Belinda has recently released a book called Adventure Revolution, which is the first book to explain why adventure is essential to well-being. The book and this conversation resonated with me enormously. Before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine. Those of you who listen regularly will have heard me say a few times that Sidetracked is an amazing quarterly journal and it celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration and everything in between. They share many of the same morals and ethics as us and they're big believers in story over pomp and prestige. The written words and images that they carefully select have been a huge inspiration for me over the years. I'd seriously recommend a subscription and you can find out more at Sidetrack.com. I'd also like to take a moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. The foundation is an incredible organisation that works to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. If you're listening to this, then it's highly likely you've been exposed to the natural world and everything it can offer you already, but we're the lucky ones. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review, as the numbers help us reach a wider audience. Okay, over to Belinda Kirk. If you could please just introduce yourself and tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you. Hi, I'm Belinda Kirk. What do I do? That's a big one. I, I, I love adventures and I love inspiring other people to go and live more adventurously and take on adventures, both big and small. I've done that over the years in lots of different ways. I lead adventures. I run Explorers Connect, which is about empowering and inspiring people to do adventures. Um. I have written the book Adventure Revolution and run a, a conference, Adventure Mind, that are all about explaining the message that is most passionate to my heart, or most close to my heart, which is why we need adventure. It's essential for our well-being and getting that message out. So, And I'm a mum, <laughs> the most important job I have. <laughs> 
I think we're probably pretty aligned on all of that. So (laughs) there's a lot. I have to be very careful with this conversation because I feel like I could drift into, you know, 10 hours of philosophical rambling. But I think it would make sense for you to start by talking about your, like where you accessed adventure first or where you noticed you were and what it was that inspired you to kind of live an adventurous life. Well, if I go right back to the start, I was about six or seven years old and I was I was a feral child. The word feral was used, and I'm so grateful for those years. Um, I lived on Alderney, one of the Channel Islands, and um, there were there were not that many cars, and there was no stranger danger that we have worries about our kids nowadays. You know, because everyone knew everyone, and every curtain twitched would do anything. <laughs> so. Um, Difficult, a challenging place to live, maybe for me as an adult, but as a child, and such a privileged young childhood. I was free, I had a freedom, I was free to explore. And I remember, if I really think about when I was first felt like an explorer, it was on that island because I found a secret garden that I thought no one else went to. And I pretended to be David Attenborough and would measure things and assess things and like you know all the bugs and the plants and stuff um but I also would climb trees and there's bunk there's world war ii bunkers all over the island so I'd go on my bike and either on my own or with my best friend and we would go and um discover stuff and I think that was I don't know I think that was just my base actually that I my whole life has thank goodness I had that because then I I grew up I got a bit older, we moved away from the islands and I moved to a city and I lost nature and adventure and all of that stuff. And I think in teen years, you kind of get away from that stuff anyway, because you kind of get obsessed with teen stuff, teenage stuff. I think, um, I don't know, maybe not. I mean, some teenagers keep hold of it, but I definitely, I, we moved away from that and I lost it. And then I found the Duke of Edinburgh Award and that, that got me back. I knew, because I'd had that really early experience, as soon as I heard about the Duke of Edinburgh Award, I was like, oh, I've got to do that. I don't know why, but I've got to do those expeditions in the mountains. And I just was drawn to it. And so I think that that set me off. And simplest question in the world, what happened next? (laughs) Well, then I, I did my bronze Duke of Edinburgh Award and my silver, and I... I just loved the expedition part of it. I mean, I know there's other parts of the award and I, I it, it's a very good award and it's good to do the other parts, but really I was just so, I felt so alive doing the adventures. Um, there was, the first one was four of us, f- me and three fem- female friends, um, you know, a bunch of teenagers with from the city, from Bristol, with not really much clue of what we were doing, off with like, you know, borrowed rucksacks up, up into the Brecon Beacons in mostly the rain, a bit of sun, but it is Wales, bless, bless Wales, love it. But yeah, a bit rainy and miserable, but, and it should have been miserable, but actually it wasn't, it was amazing. And I, I had, in my later childhood, I had a lot of, I had some difficulties, some traumatic events that I had to deal with and I think teenage times are difficult anyway and I I'd I'd been um subject to a series of episodes of violence um in my sort of early teens 
or like 12 plus, I don't know, something like around those years. And that totally, I had really low self-esteem. I, I felt completely worthless. I mean, I was, I, it's the lowest point of my life. There's no question. And I, I struggled for quite a while, but Duke of Edinburgh and going on up into the Brecon Beacons was for me a change in direction because I, I wouldn't say it, it was my full therapy there and then. It didn't sort everything out, but it, it gave me a glimpse of what I was capable of. It gave me a glimpse that I was, I was capable and maybe that I was worth something and maybe I could do stuff, more stuff than I thought I could at that point. Um, because, um, because I think if you, I, I kind of, if you've, if you've climbed a mountain, you don't only see a view of the world differently, but you, you see yourself differently. The view of yourself is different as well. And so I sort of thought, oh, if I can do this, then maybe I can do other stuff. And also just, frankly, the, the way that it made me feel, I felt alive and free and I suppose childlike, a bit like returning to those early, early years. And I just thought, this is something I need. Um, and I became hooked on adventure. And really, my whole life since then has been a series of finding my next challenge, you know, natural challenges, finding the next way to get into the wilderness, um, um, I went on from there to then I, I traveled. I the confidence that the Duke of Edinburgh Award gave me those those expeditions in the Brecon Beacons and so on. I went on to do lots more adventures through sixth form that I would go and plan. And people would say, you know, this this kind of I was always a bit in the background at school. I wasn't particularly popular or pretty or good at anything, and I was just a bit kind of in the background. But then I found this thing, and my one of my best mates actually said. You know, it was like a light came on in you when I went off and did that this um, first expedition for Duke of Edinburgh. So ev- I started planning more adventures in Britain. Then um, I went to, I, it, I don't know, it seems like a huge jump, but I just, I kind of build up this confidence through doing that. And I went to Africa when I was 18. I went on my first expedition. Um, I was studying monkeys in the middle of the Uluguru Mountains in the monsoonal forest there. Um, having never really left Europe. I mean, been on a couple of family holidays beforehand um, in Europe, but I mean, had no idea what I was doing really. And then I was, and then I traveled on my own around Africa, um, mostly because I just, I mean, it was terrifying at times. I nearly got kidnapped. I mean, there was some really crazy times, but because I was so naive, but I got through it and um, I came back from Africa and I was absolutely I mean, that is the biggest change in my life, the biggest transformation. And I always say that, you know, that your first big adventure is your, the one that that resets your, your vision of yourself and the vision of your future and what's possible. So I went on, yeah, then I just went on to leading lots more expeditions. Um, I've led expeditions all over the place for, I mean, decades, really. Um, I was very... Oh, I don't know. I don't know where to go. I, I could just keep banging on. I mean, so much to say. Um, I spent, I'd say that I spent my 20s obsessed with finding out what I was capable of. I mean, there was probably a bit of trying to impress people there as well. But um, and mostly it was about trying to find out what I could do and building myself back up 
I think, from the difficult times I've been through. And then my 30s, I was all about starting Explorers Connect and all about trying to share this gift that I found. I thought I'd found something like so amazing in adventure that I just had to start sharing it. So I've been running Explorers Connect for 12 years now, and it's all about getting the message out that adventure is really good for us. It's not just a luxury. It's actually an essential part of being a human. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, uh, I, yeah, I could keep... Ask me a question. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fascinating. I mean, that's why I haven't, you know, interrupted you. Is just to to watch you kind of processing it all and thinking about it all, and you know, you're so honest and so eloquent with it. It's it's quite clear that you know exactly what it's done for you. Which I think that's the part that's rare. Actually, is people know what they've done and they know how they've changed, but they don't know maybe why or what the process was. And I think because of that, I'm quite keen to go into detail on some of it. And I'm really keen to know what your, when you first thought, I'm going to Africa, you know, I've done D of E, I'm going to Africa, what your plan was and what you expected and then what actually happened. Um, my plan was, <laughs> I can't remember all of that now. <laughs> Ask me a question. Oh, no, there's three. Um, <laughs> um, my plan was... Basically, I'd been completely compliant my entire life up until that moment. I had worked really hard at school. My life was quite was quite dominated by fear because obviously there was the violence that happened for a while, but also there was there was this fear of failing. And at school, I went to I got a scholarship into a private school, and so there was this expectation of doing well. And so, you know. It was a ridiculous, it sounds ridiculous to me now, but the idea that if I didn't get an A, that I was a total failure, which is, of course, ridiculous and wrong. But if your expectations are at that point and, and people's expectations are at that point, um, then it's very hard to... Well, then that, that's just what your reality is, isn't it? So I, I was very fearful that if I didn't get the grades I was supposed to get at, at school, that I then wouldn't get into the university that I was supposed to and therefore wouldn't get the job I was supposed to and therefore be a total failure for the rest of my life. So the amount of pressure that I put myself, as well as came from around me, I think, was um, was very real. Um, I've gone to the point bit now. Where we go? Oh, yeah, so the plan. So I'd been totally compliant. I had worked and worked and worked, and I was very dominated by just, I must achieve, I must, you know, this is what's expected. Um, otherwise I'll be a failure. Um, but then I, I, through doing Duke of Edinburgh Award, I was like, I love this thing. This other thing away from school and all the stuff I'm supposed to do makes me feel like nothing else makes me feel. It makes me feel alive, most alive. Just, I, yeah, I just, I, I, I can't turn my back on that. I've got to keep hold of it. And so my, my grandfather was a zoology professor in Africa, all over Africa. He lived in, he worked and lived in Nigeria, Lesotho, um, Uganda. And so his, his, my grandparents' house was full of like Basutu hats and spears and drums. And, and he would tell me stories of Africa. He was an extraordinary guy, actually, and so humble with it. And there was just this calling to go to Africa. So I thought I knew what Africa was going to be like to a degree. <laughs> But I didn't really, also, I just didn't really think about it. I just thought, that's what I have to do. I've got to get 
I've got to get some more of that thing that I get on Dufone Reward and, and other adventures. So I went off um, to join a organized expedition for three months. And that was, um, yeah, that was a biological expedition. because so I was going to go to, I went, I ended up going to Oxford to do biological sciences degree. So this was all about um, a bit of field work as well. So I could convince my parents it wasn't a totally bad idea because back in the 1990s, gap years were not something that people did. It was just like, what What do you mean you're going to just go on holiday for a year? And it's like, it's not a holiday. <laughs> this is what I've struggled with my whole life. It's like, oh, you're going on another holiday. It's not a holiday. <laughs> it's an adventure. Anyway, but um, I, I laugh about it now if people say that. But it used to bug me. It's like, it's not a holiday. But um, I'm waffling. I'm sorry. I'm going off the point. Um, so we, yeah. So I went off to Africa thinking I'm going to do this biological field work, get this really good experience, and then I'm just going to travel and just have a bit of time to explore. And um, and it was um, it was the, the expedition was was great. I think it was. I mean, it was intimidating, but I was with other people. Then I travelled for a little bit with a couple of girls off the expedition, uh, but they had to go back to work or um, whatever, you know, go back to work or, or, or study. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to go home. I'm just going to travel on my own. And that's when it got really like there were some terrifying moments. Um, I was on a, the very first day that I said goodbye to this this girl that I this lady that I was travelling with. Um, we'd, we'd spent months together by then in the jungle and then traveling. Um, I said goodbye to her. She went off uh, in Dar es Salaam. I got on this bus that evening and it was supposed to take 18 hours to get to Nairobi. But the bus, I went for the cheap bus, which was foolish um, because it had no lights. And so when it got dark, it just stopped. So that made it much, much longer. But then also this, this poor guy got on the bus next to me on this trip. And um, he was obviously really ill, and I offered him some water. But, I, I mean, I had a little smattering of Swahili at that point, but nothing really to communicate properly. And I was really, like, it was, yeah, it was really, it was really worried for him. But um, I th- that was about halfway. It was a 52-hour journey in the end, which was ridiculous. But by the time we actually got to Nairobi, I remember I was sleeping and, and someone jostled my shoulder to wake me up and, and they were like talking to me in Swahili, and I was like trying to like trying to vaguely guess what they were saying. And I looked at the guy next to me, and he had a kanga over his head, which is like the, the material they use out there. Um, and he died in the seat next to me. And I was just like, I mean, I was obviously really sad for him, but I was also like terrified of like, I'm now in Africa on my own, like this 18-year-old who doesn't know what on earth they're doing. And what if I get ill? Is am I <laughs> And so that was quite a terrifying first 20, well, for, well, 52 hours, I suppose, because it took so long. But that was literally as soon as my friend had gone and I was like, oh, you know. And then I got into Nairobi and then it just kind of snowballed because I, I didn't want to hang out with the, um, I didn't want to hang out with all the backpackers. I was like, no, I want to see real Africa. I want to experience the real thing. And it was so naive. I was so naive. It's hilarious. It's not fearlessness as well. People say, oh, you're so fearless. It's like, no, it's stupidity. Um, Anyway, so I I went to, I hung out with some local ladies. I ended up going drinking with them all around the bars and then going somewhere, which I thought was a nightclub with them, but it turned out to be a brothel. And 
because they were ladies of the night or whatever the words are you supposed to use nowadays I don't know and um this was literally after I'd just arrived in Nairobi I mean it was a ridiculous first week um I nearly went home after this so I was in this brothel basically and it was a really steep staircase up to get into this place with these big bouncers on the door and I was up there and I hid in the loo which is of course the most sensible thing to do (laughs) And then I was like, I can't hide in the loo. I'm going to have to get out of here. But then I went out and I could, I, I thought, I don't know if I'm going to get out of here. I don't know if I'm going to get through the bouncers and stuff because there is a white slave trade. And I, I think I've been brought back there. Anyway, I stood at the bar. People were trying to talk to me and I just blanked them out. And I was just looking at, like, at the bar thinking, I'm trying to think of what to do next. And this guy, this Australian guy, just the way he put it, he said, you, you're the same. You look like you could be the same age as my daughter. What are you doing here? And I just went, oh, and I just like broke down. I was like, oh, and I came here, and, da, 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 and I just, I didn't know how to get out, and da, da, da. and he was like, you should not be here. Um, and he said, wait here, don't move. I'm getting my friends, and they literally surrounded me in like a rugby scrum, and then we just went for the door, and I, it was like a massive punch up exploded. Um, I'll never, it was, it was so surreal. <laughs> I don't know. It was such a long time ago, but I remember so many of the details. And I remember the girls that I'd come in with jumping on the back of some of the guys that were there. And they were shouting and screaming. And, um, and we bundled down this really dark, really steep, more importantly, dark, but really steep staircase. And I thought we we're going to fall. And we went past the bouncers. And there was people peeling off our rub- rugby scrum and then we got out into the street. It was me and this guy, this Australian dude, this big Australian, like, oil, he was an oil rigger, basically, rigger guy. Um, him and his mate. And we were just legging it down the street in Nairobi. And there's not really many street lights, So you're just in, it's really dark. And you just, I'm just thinking, I'm going to fall, I'm going to fall. We were just legging it. And we found, eventually, we, were, we ran for a while. We found a taxi. And, and, he, 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 and I went, he took me back to where I was staying. And he was just like, yeah, made sure I got in. And I wish to this day that I'd had taken his name because this this guy saved my life I'm pretty sure of it anyway I've gone right off the point into some majorly random story such a long time ago but I um I can't remember what the original story (laughs) question was but I was I came through all of that and I just it, it literally the next day I just thought I really don't know if I can do this like all two of these things happened straight away. I was like, oh my gosh. Um, and then I went to watch this film called Ippy Tumby, which was this musical from years ago, well, from the time. And uh, and it showed me pictures of Victoria Falls. And I just thought, I'm going to Zimbabwe. I'm going there. And I'll start again. It'll be all right. Um, and I did. I flew down to Malawi, or maybe I flew straight to Zim. I can't remember. And I ended up, um, everything was, went so much better after that. Um, and I met lots of, of course, because w- what happens in most places, well, everywhere that you, you travel, 99% of the people you meet are amazing and helpful and supportive and whatever. But I had this mad start and I, I so nearly went home. The only reason I probably didn't fly home instead of fly to Zimbabwe was because the embarrassment of going home <laughs> sort of six six or seven months early would have been just like, why are you here? You're supposed to be away. Um, I just thought I'm going to have to try again. 
<laughs> anyway, I've gone right off the point, probably. It, but it does not matter. Like, <clears throat> I was just about to say, who cares what the original question was? Um, because, I mean, that's an amazing story. You know, whether or not it's, um, I say amazing in that I wasn't expecting it at all. You know, it's quite dark. And I guess given the work that you do and the things that you've written, do you, was it was that an adventure? Um, well, going to Africa was an adventure. I mean, yeah, some, you get adversity along the way. You, you kind, I kind of expect difficulties. Um, but as I say, mostly people are good. I mean, yeah. I mean, those were completely random things. It, it's just it so nearly stopped me from <laughs> continuing. I think all sorts of different adventures I've done, so endurance stuff or travelling um, like that, that was more sort of travelling around really after the expedition. You have different types of challenges. I mean, challenge is definitely a key part of an adventure. Um, and the uncertainty is a key part of adventure. So um, I had chosen to be there. I just hadn't realised what I was getting myself into. But, I mean, I have I have experienced that many times where I think, oh, it can't be that bad. Oh, we'll just, you know, we'll do that. And then it's like, oh, man. But if you don't try things, you can't learn. So unless you're willing to fail, unless you're willing to go through some difficulties. Uh, but if the difficulties were that bad the whole time, I wouldn't be doing it. But uh, they're not usually that bad. And you have such magic. That's the thing. You get magic from adventures, so you, you keep going. Yeah, it's a fine balance, isn't it? I think that, you know, you were 18, I think you said, and it's such a formative time to be going travelling solo, particularly you know, in that sort of, well, not that you necessarily went out in an extreme way, but you had extreme experiences. Like, what did that do to you as a person? Well, definitely. When I, by the time I, by the time I came back, I had a completely different view of myself and what I was capable of. So Duke of Edinburgh Award and that, those early little adventures in Britain made me see myself a bit differently. But by the time I came back from Africa, I'd like survived quite a lot of difficult stuff. But I'd also had such amazing experiences met so many amazing people gone to amazing places experienced real magic and and so you, also what I hoped for out of life was very different it, it's not that I, I saw myself differently but what I hoped for was a much higher standard I suppose I hoped for more out of life you know for me life is all about finding the magic and that could be you know a moment with your child and they say something amazing like my little boy's always giving me magic like that or it could be swimming with whale shark or or for me on that first expedition I was bef on the actually research expedition part before I traveled on my own I was um tasked with going to survey these monkeys in in the forest the, these black and white colobus monkeys and I was really up for it because I was going to do a biology degree and I, I really, I love nature. I'm still so enamoured and so interested in wildlife and stuff. So I went to um, survey what they were eating. And over a period of a couple of months, I, I'd basically trek out into the jungle, the, well, monsoonal forest on my own, um, watch the monkeys, see what they were eating, what kind of species and which parts of the leaves or the berries or whatever they were eating and just sort of making a, a data analysis of it or collecting the data for it. Um, but over those two months, initially, the monkeys would like, would like throw stuff at me and, and poo on me. They'd try, like there'd be a poo rain coming out of the, the, the leaves. But over two months, I could get closer and closer and closer. And so 
I remember the most magical moment of my teens and of that whole ex- a, a, a year in Africa was when I was, I crawled up the bank to get, because it was a really steep bank. And so by crawling up the bank, I was much higher to the, off the ground and much, um, much more on the same level as the monkeys. So I could see them really clearly. Like we were just looking at each other's eyes sort of thing. And I realized when I was sat there watching them munch away that they weren't throwing poo at me anymore <laughs> or anything else. They kind of accepted me as this kind of useless monkey that could hardly climb, that would just sort of hairless monkey that would just sit there and was <laughs> pretty, pretty useless, but not a danger to them. They kind of accepted me into their troop, as it were. And, um, and I just thought, this is, this is extraordinary. Yeah, this is a, I mean, only if, a couple of months before, I was just some teenager at, in doing my A-levels um, who'd never really been anywhere or done anything and had no real expectation of myself. And, um, and then at the same moment, my team, my wider team who I was working with on the expedition came walking along the valley floor to put up a bat net. And there was about four or five of them. And they were chatting and making noise. And the monkeys all started scattering and throwing poo down at them and just like, to- and I was like, ha-ha they're my monkeys, they're, you know, these are, the, I'm, I've earned my place with them. And um, I just felt extraordinary pride, much greater pride than getting A's at GCSEs or, or, or anything like that. Like a true, I don't know, it's just a real authentic moment. Um, and that magic is the magic that I, I think I'm chasing through doing adventures. And what is it, that you think is so important about those kinds of experiences and the resulting feelings? Well, I think that um, taking on adventures, taking on natural challenges that you choose, um, very importantly, it's not, tra- it's not trauma, like that's enforced on you. It's choosing challenge, in a, especially in a natural arena, um, and choosing uncertainty and, and also choosing adversity to a point because if it's not if you're not cold wet or hungry at some point then it's probably not an adventure if you if you choose challenge like that it is transformational it is life changing i have i have personally experienced that but i've also over 26 years of taking people on adventures i have time and time and time again seen those transformations I've seen people's relationships improve. I've seen people's confidence and sort of self-esteem grow. Um, that it helps with healing of trauma, uh, very much like I have for myself. You know, it helps you go through a healing process, I think. Um, I've obviously written a book about this, so I could talk for hours about how adventure can help us. But I think it can help us to, to face fear, Um and, and all those, there's, there's lots of areas where I think by doing adventures, you learn life skills. Because adventures themselves, you get great feedback from. You can, if you're a positive psychology, if you're into positive psychology, storing good, experiencing good feelings and doing good experiences, kind of, you bank them up like the, and, and you draw on them later. So, it's the experience, the positive experiences at the time, even the negative ones. The type two fun is also good. Um, but it's the experiences you have at the time. But it's really the real power of adventure is when you take what you've learned from adventure 
the life lessons, the self-awareness, the confidence building, whatever it is, and you take it back to the rest of your life, your relationships, your career, your whatever, your lifestyle, you live different. You can live differently. You can live more boldly. You can, yeah, I think you, that's where adventure's really key, um, especially the world that we've built and the society that we've built in the West is what you learn on adventures and take back to your life that is so incredibly transformational. Um, yeah. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And do you think adventure is at risk? What do you mean at risk? At risk of... Yeah. Of deteriorating and sort of almost not disappearing because it'll never disappear, but declining is maybe a better phrase rather than at risk. Well, I think it already has. I mean, the reason I think why adventure is used as a therapy or as a self-development tool now, you know, why is it so effective for us now? Probably more than ever, even 20 odd years ago when I started all this, I'd started seeing this, is because we've made life so, um, because life is so unadventurous. Um, and I'm not saying it's easier, it's actually harder because of that, I think. So it's very clinical. We, we have really long-term goals we have enormous amounts of chronic stress um so if you're having an adventure you have lots of stress on adventures but the stress is short-lived and it's varied and you immediately get positive feedback you get achievement and confidence and joy and awe and all these positive things and just simple relief if you've just run away from some snake or something um you know, so you've got these ups and downs, but it's very natural. And it's how our brain was evolved to work, is to go through these processes of stress. Stress is actually good for us. It builds us. Chronic stress, like the stress of a divorce or a, buying a house, is horrible. Um, the, the stress of exams. These are really, they're like low-level stress, but for long periods of time. And chronic stress is, is linked to heart disease, depression, anxiety, diabetes. I mean, I mean, you could say all of the civilization, you know, the, the diseases of civilization are pretty much all linked to kind of chronic stress. So that's a huge part of adventuring, that why adventure works is because we've created a world that is so unnatural and we're living very unnatural, in, in lots of ways we're very, very unnatural. You know, we're not moving around enough. We're not... Um, challenging ourselves um, outdoors you know challenging yourself on minecraft isn't the same as uh, doing it out in in the real world so i think adventure is adventure at risk i mean i think yeah it's already much much less 
um, a factor of modern life than, than, than the life that we are evolved to have lived. Um, I mean, if you look at, say, just the school system and, you know, th- over the last 30 years, we've basically demolished outdoor education. We've shut down, goodness knows how, especially in England, I don't, uh, but especially in England, I don't want to talk about other countries because I don't, I can't remember, <laughs> I'll just go on for too long. But particularly in England and, and Scotland, you know, in Britain, you know, we've shut down the vast majority of our outdoor centres. We've taken geography field trips, biology field trips. They're either completely softened and or whatever, or we've taken them out completely. So we're not experiencing adventure like we used to. Um, and it's funny because amazing things, amazing organisations like, say, Outward Bound were set up. Well, specifically, I'll talk about Outward Bound because that's a fantastic organisation. It was set up because back post-war, they thought that the young... So the young soldiers weren't coping so well in the trenches as the older soldiers. And, um, and so they were like, but that's because they hadn't actually been living this sort of adversity from adventure. They hadn't, they hadn't experienced that. They hadn't been able to build the same sort of coping mechanisms. And if they, if the, if Kurt Hans, who, who invented, as it were, the Outward Bound Trust, if he were to look at young people now, I mean, our life has gotten, not easier, I'm not saying it's gotten easier, but it's got more comfortable, more rule-bound, more routine. And it's those routines and rules and the lack of responsibility that we have take for ourselves. Those are all wound up in the same thing. And, and it's all to do with being less time in nature and, and less time adventuring. So, yeah, adventure's already at risk. I mean, good, goodness. <laughs> I mean, I just so agree with all of it. It's like almost just... Yeah, everything I'm striving to say on this podcast by vicariously through other people is is you summarising it now after 104 episodes or whatever it is. But, yeah, one thing I've never said that always surprises me, I mean, maybe everybody has got it worked out and we just don't say it, is so many motivational speakers and keynote speakers are either ex-soldiers or explorers and adventurers or high-octane sports people. And, like, I don't know that that's an accident. I think it's probably because the experiences they've had have made them really good at leadership, coping, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe the ultimate thing that these companies who are hiring them should do is get their staff to go on adventures. Well, exactly. <laughs> you know, they give out gym memberships. and stuff. You know, Big, big organisations that have, have the money for well-being, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, we'll pay for your gym membership or something. No, forget the gyms. <laughs> Sorry, gyms. Anyone who owns a gym out there. But, like, forget that. Send them supping, kayaking, down to the cl- bouldering wall. I mean, every town has a bouldering wall. I think adventure can seem a bit out of, out of reach. But if you look at things like geocaching, wild camping, wild swimming, you can do it very inexpensively. And even from a city, you can do a lot in the city. And even, even if you don't have a car, you can always get on a train and get somewhere further and do a little bit more and a little bit more, you know. Um, especially Britain, we're not the biggest country. You can, there's a lot of places you can get to quite quickly. Um, so there's a lot out there. But yeah, you described how I'm, I'm kind of summarising a lot of what you think. I've spent 10 years basically wondering, why is it that we don't appreciate adventure? And why is it that no one can explain to me why adventure is so good for us? And then for years, I just researched it because I was just out, out of pure interest. I wanted to understand why it had changed my life and why it had changed so many people's lives that I was working with and taking on adventures. 
Um, um, and so I gathered all this information and I was asking other people, like, do you know a book about, I want to understand this. Has anyone written a book about this? And I was even asking some of the scientists I was ta- interviewing over the years. I was like, can't you just write a book about this? Can someone just put this all together? Because I want to understand it. No one did. And <laughs> eventually, because of the pandemic, I mean, for years I'd said, I'm going to write this book. I'm going to get down to it. But I was too busy having fun on adventures. But during the pandemic, I finally sat down and was like, I've got all the research here. I've, I've interviewed dozens of people. I've, I've seen so many people transform in front of me. And, I, and I, I desperately want this book to exist because I think the book, I feel, is, is what I, after 26 years of taking people on adventure, this is what I want to say. This is, this is a message that I think has value to be shared. You know, if we don't take the opportunity to use adventure to improve our well-being, we're missing a golden opportunity. Um, and it's so much easier to sell to people, as it were, than going to the gym or cutting salt or giving up stuff. It's like, do you want to go on an adventure? It's like, oh, OK. Most people will say yes. And even the people who say no, if you if you if you get them on the right frame of mind, you get them on the right day, they'll say yes. as well. Because who on earth doesn't want to go on an adventure? Um, yeah. I think it, it's so, so interesting because it's also it's an accessibility issue. And I'll try and make this point succinctly, but... There are lots of people who can speak incredibly eloquently about the truth around whether or not the outdoors is accessible from a um, economic, race, gender, etc. background, and that's a big conversation that needs to be had because I think most people think the outdoors is accessible, and I'll argue pretty fiercely that it's not. And I've only really been learning about that in the last year or so, and it's shocked me. But I think it's also about permission or the permission that we give ourselves because I tend to find in the world I. You know, I, I live and work in the outdoor sector, but that's my family aren't there. You know, my, my wife doesn't move in that world. And I often feel like people don't have permission or they don't feel like they do to go and do adventurous things. Like, for example, they'll go on a ski holiday, which is great and they should do, but they'll stay on the pistes and they should because it's dangerous off the pistes. But hire a guide for a day to take you off piste and they'll take you on an adventure. You know, it doesn't have to be a suffer fest to be an adventure. No, it doesn't. And I think that idea of permission is really interesting because I don't know why, but some part of our society is we don't trust our instinct anymore. So we, we have this call to adventure. I think we all do. And we, we dampen it down over the years. But we all have this call to adventure. It's, I think it's innate in human, as a human being. But we almost need to have it proven to us that it's something worthwhile and productive and, you know, it's worth our money and time. And the, my, the part of the reason I wrote the book is to try and explain that it's not a luxury. It is an essential part of well-being. If you want to live a fulfilled life, it needs to have adventure in it. And this is why. And so I, I've done masses of research to explain that. And, and that's why, you know, that's, what I, that's my main message through Explores Connect and my talks that I do and everything. It's like it, there is a place for it that is an essential place for it. Um, and by giving the stats and the theory and, you know, not masses and masses of science, hopefully it's all very accessible and easy to understand um, with lots and lots of stories of transformation so that you really get it. Um, I think if we understand it, if we can put a figure on it almost, 
then we're more likely to find time in our busy, because we're all too busy. That's part of the problem of modern life as well. We can make time for it because we're like, actually, we need that. We need that for our well-being. Um, so instead of my gym membership, I'm going to I'm going to take up a you know, I'm going to join a canoe club or something and I'm going to see how that goes. And so, yeah, I think we need to give ourselves permission to do these things because we have to have it. We, we need to have it explained a bit like nature. Now that we have all this science out there and all these experts saying nature's good for you, the nature effect is a real thing. It is good for your mental and physical well-being. You know, it's easier to get funding for nature-based therapies and, and what have you, or social prescribing, um, or, or just to take time out and go, right, I'm not going to have my break and sit in the office. I'm going to go and walk under some trees in the park, you know. So just by kind of having it explained to us, we need it explained so that we value it, even though our instinct, I think, is there. It says, I want to go and have an adventure. So, um, yeah, that's hopefully what I'm... That was hopefully help, helping. I know that I've had amazing feedback from people saying, yeah, like um, people who are outdoor professionals or, um, or therapists who are now using adventure in their work more or because they can communicate the value of adventure because of, you know, because they've read my book and, and or they've come to one of my talks and they've gone, oh, I can like, I can package it. I can, un I can communicate it basically. Yeah. So, um, I mean, and there's, I'd really like to talk to you about nature therapy because, uh, you know, I, I impulsively, when I'm stressed or sad or something's happened, I go outside. And I don't mean that in like some, hey, check me out, you know, I go and do, I mean, as in I walk outside my back door and I go and just wander about my garden. And I don't know whether that's learnt or whether that's just impulsive because, you know, there's all the chemistry we could go into around what the sun really does to us and how if it's through glass, it doesn't do the same thing, et cetera. But... <clears throat> My rambling point is I'd love to talk to you about, I assume you know a lot more than me, about um, how I think the NHS and doctors are prescribing time outside as a cure now. I can't remember what they're calling it, either a green or whatever. But green they're actually... Days. Is that it? Yeah, it, well, it's still a little bit too fledgling in Britain. It needs We need more of it. But um, social prescribing is the is the big umbrella and that's this idea that to take the pressure off NHS is to do more stuff within the community so it can be everything from a I don't know a sewing group but also or, or anything in the community or walking but also a walking group or or a nature or adventure and the and particularly green days are this idea that a lot more GPs are getting this I, I mean particularly about nature, they, they, they're understanding that instead of prescribing immediately going straight to antidepressants, it's like, right, how about if you join this community group and, and every week you'll go for a walk together? And that might be enough to start, to start people on a different path and different, because I think, I think well-being for me is always, a, is always about, we all get into bad habits, but we can also choose good habits. And so if you do things that build you up or you choose things that take you down and a lot of modern life takes us down, social media, too much screen time, that sort of stuff, it, it kind of just drags you down in the end. Whereas doing stuff that builds you up, like taking adventures or being out in nature, it, once you start doing it, you kind of want more and it, 
you you can start to build yourself and your your resilience and so on up. Um, but I mean, there are some amazing examples of social prescribing working. One of the stories that still just gives me so much joy to share is how um, a particular charity, big charity now, started through social prescribing. Essentially, um, the first time it happened is that they set, um, a guy called Joe set up a surfing therapy session down in Watergate Bay in Cornwall. And it was just a pilot study. It was like, let's get some, some young people who had been referred through the GP, so referred through social prescribing, to go out and do something in the community that would help them. And one of the boys on this pilot study was called Sam. And Sam had several years of, um, of depression to the point where he, for over a year, he had not spoken. He, and so he, he was an elective mute. So he, he, he could speak physically, but he'd chosen not to speak. And as you can imagine, his parents had tried everything and this pilot surf study, uh, surf therapy um, pilot, uh, not study, but well, it was a study as well, but it, this um, scheme came up. And they thought, well, yeah, well, that'll help him just feel a bit better about himself, have a bit of a relief from the stress of what is going on. And so he, he joined this six-week surf therapy session and, um, and, you know, had fell off his surfboard a lot of times and built resilience by getting up and getting back on his surfboard. And so slowly, without, without, you know, without making it overt, it's like building up his resilience. He was building trust in his, the, the other people on the course and his instructor. And so they were building trust and relationships in their relationships. Um, and then he was getting all the positive feedback of catching his first wave and that kind of the joy that you get when you, I don't know if you surf, but it's like, yes, when you catch a wave and the achievement and the, the you know, the satisfaction in himself, like having achieved it. And so there was all this positive emotion as well. And over six weeks on the last day of the course, his parent, both his parents came and sat on the beach to watch him. Um, and, for no particular reason, out of nowhere, he just started chatting to his instructor. And it still makes me well up the story because it's so incredible. Just six weeks of surfing, you know, it, we don't have to, it's not, in, it's, not, it's not out of our reach to do this for a lot of young people and, and every, any age. And so after six weeks, he just started chatting to his surf instructor and his dad came up to Joe, who's, um, who set up the project. And he said, thank you for giving me back, or thank you for giving us back our son. And it was, we were talking, I was talking earlier about taking a new route. A door opened and Sam was able to just go in a different direction because of this adventuring, because of what he could learn through building resilience and building confidence. And that was, um, the guy was called Joe, Joe Taylor, who set up that project. And it's now called The Wave Project which is an amazing big charity um, that is um, all over Britain now. You know, it's helping thousands of young people um, that are referred through social prescribing. So young people who are, coming back to social prescribing, young people who are suffering, they might have tried therapy, they might have tried, you know, CBD, that sort of thing, or they might have tried antidepressants. But, you know, away from all of that, just take them on an adventure. And magic happens. Um, so yes, social prescribing definitely. We need more of it. <laughs> so, 
you know, obviously it can be expensive and we have to get people on these courses that are funded and they need somewhere to stay and things to eat and all of that. And I, I realise that there are barriers there, but culturally as well as a society... He didn't have to go away. I mean, this was just in his back garden. I mean, it was not back garden, but you know, it it was it was a it's pretty it's pretty cost effective to get volunteer instructors and some surf kit and what have you and a bit of insurance and you know it's a a pretty it's a pretty cost effective way of helping people. Um, So I would challenge you on that one. Well, no, that no, that's yeah, exactly. So. In that case, because that's what I was going to, you know, really briefly, like Outward Bound was what did it for me. You know, you talk about D of E. I got sent on Outward Bound by school and that was lucky because it was funded and all of that stuff. But those things can be inaccessible in a way. But like you just said, you know, it can be really easy. It's just the voluntary programs, et cetera. So where have we gone wrong if the centres are in decline, et cetera, access to nature is? I think because we just don't, we just don't value it. And we don't see it for what it is. I mean, the fact that the nature effect argument is so strong now, it's become mainstream, is great. And it's why, part of the reason why I have, I, I, I thought, I've been wanting to write this book for years and I want this message to get out and now is the time to do it, as well as COVID lockdowns and actually sitting still, which was <laughs> the other reason I wrote it. But it was like, you know, it's, it's, we understand that nature is good for us, it's not just a bunch of hippies saying nature's really good for you. No, it's accepted. But I think the extra layer, like nature plus plus, is adventure effect. And so now that, and it's not just me saying this. I mean, I, what I've done with the book is just, is just tried to create a whole theory and, a, and a, an explanation. Whereas there's little pockets of, of people working in tourism research, in psychology, in um, outdoor learning. There's there's all these other. There's lots of much cleverer people. You know, people who've done lots more research than I have, talking about specific stuff um, about why adventure is good for us. Um, it's just that I've sort of brought it together to try and give it a proper explanation, a clear explanation. But the, there's a real uptick as well at the moment. In the last five years, or, or definitely in the last three years, two or three years of like loads more research coming out around adventure and well-being. Um, and so the research is there. That research really helps to create an argument as to why we should fund this. Because if you look at charities and stuff, how do they get funded? They have to prove, it's this, this idea again that we have to prove what we're doing. That's good and bad. I, I agree that we have to. We can't just give money to charities and, and it not get used the most effective way. But the, the charities and, and CICs and so on, they're much better now at writing impact reports about, right, we take these people of any whatever age or whatever, adults or children or whatever, and we go climbing or we go um, surfing or whatever, and these are the, the out, this is the output. And so people are measuring it better. And, but sorry, what was the question? Where do we go wrong? I don't know. Well, I think, I think we went wrong years ago by not really valuing it. And I think we're on the way now to valuing it um, I think hopefully there's <laughs> hopefully there's a change. We've hit rock bottom, and there's um, sometimes you have to hit the bottom to come back up again. Uh, yeah, especially. I mean, I could drift down a big rabbit hole here, but I think especially when it's fairly obvious that smoking, obesity, and m- 
difficulties with mental health are going to cost the NHS quite a lot of money. So if we could fix those things by, I realise smoking is not as simple as not doing it, as somebody who may or may not have indulged in that in the past. Um, but, I mean, obesity, mental health, those things are, you know, they're, they're, they're cultural problems, they're, um, they're mental problems as much as they're physical problems. And actually, if adventure in the outdoors is, an, is, a, is a fix for some of them, that's free. We don't even need to pay for pills. Like, surely that's an argument for the NHS prescribing it and as a society you're starting to value it more outside of it just being quite good fun yeah oh no absolutely and but how do we get doc i mean my book is called adventure revolution because i want to see a revolution in in how we see adventure and therefore how we value it and and put it into our lives whether it be in our urban planning in our personal lifestyle choices in our schools in our social prescribing our healthcare. you know but how how do we now that we've got this set of information, how do we then get people to understand it and think about it and change stuff? I mean, goodness, there's, I mean, I think what we can all do is talk to our GPs about it and tell them, do you know that there's Wave Project or Youth Adventure Trust or Outward Bound? They're just down the road. They're really good. You could social prescribe to them because social prescribing is such, for example, is such a, such a, uh, fledgling thing at the moment. It's really, it's really not big enough, and it's not well known about yet. And then in our own personal lives, we can, if we understand adventure is good for us as well as being fun, it's good for our mental health and our physical health. But well, we can make more time and put more effort and money aside for it, and we can pull people along with us. You know, get people to come and do stuff with you that that might otherwise not. Um, I, I don't know. I mean. How do you change? How do you change the world? I don't know. It's something that I'd I'd love to, I'd love to see more adventure come back to schools. I mean, my son is four, and um, and it was I I was very passionate about it before, but I'm now even more passionate about it. It's like how do we we've stripped it out of schools, and yet we know instinctively it's good, and now we actually have some a lot of evidence to say it's good, and it also and there's even evidence to say that it improves grades if you add adventure to a school you get better grades. I, I can show you the reports. <laughs> there's, there's, there's data. So therefore, why are we not doing it? That is a, that is a bloody good question. Why are we not doing it? Yeah. And, and, you know, we're at my, my little timer says 57 minutes. So I won't, you know, take us down too many more paths and avenues, but somebody has to facilitate it. I think just to, you know, really get into it. And, teachers are humans they're like like the rest of us they've got their own strengths and weaknesses and confidences and insecurities and actually somebody's got to take these kids outside either in the rain or to the beach and i think with risk assessments and lack of equipment and blah 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 you know it's easier to say i'll just bring in 10 pine cones and fear of being sued is another one which is really which is one of the main reasons i think I, i well, I don't. I could get into this for hours, but there have been incidents in the past where big closing down of of adventure provision has happened. Um, we're, we're very fearful of things going wrong, so we're not. What we're doing basically is we, for too long now, we have put physical health over mental health, and actually, there's a balance. We need to achieve a balance, and so if we're only looking after the physical health of our children. We're not thinking about their mental health. We there is a problem. We actually have long term problems, which we're seeing now 
with the, the lack of coping mechanisms in, in young adults and so on, um, we have done a disservice to our youth and we are continuing to do that. And uh, yeah, adventure is, is not a, pa- well, it is a panacea. <laughs> I was going to say it's not a panacea. It's pretty damn good thing. And it is part of the solution. Um, I, I'm deaf, I'm sure. And it can be done inexpensively. So um, I, yeah, I'd like to see more stuff happening. Well, I mean, we're, 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 we're at time, but I, I have never done this, I don't think, in, as I say, over 100 episodes. But I've interviewed quite a lot of authors and spoken to authors about their subject matter and um, and what they've written about, I guess. And, you know, it's obvious, like, if it's interested, you go and have a look. But I have never before felt so passionately that people need to go and buy the book <laughs> um, and, you know, oh. read it and tell your friends. And, yeah, I just think it's the answer. I just think it has to be. You know, and I try trying to avoid my own soapbox moments, but it's good for us, but it's also good for the natural world because we need to be connected to nature in order to realise that we need to protect it. And if we're not going and experiencing it, we're not going to connect with it. So, yeah. We don't protect what we don't love. Yeah, no, it's exactly. so true. It's so true. And thank you so much for recommending it. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's literally, I've been asked to write books several times over my career and I've never really felt passionate about it but this was a book that I just I have to see in the world and I am I'm incredibly passionate about getting out people even if you you don't have to buy it I'm not trying to sell you anything go and borrow your you know get borrow someone else's I don't know you could there's audible there's all sorts out there yeah it's not in it's it's also inexpensive ways to get to it but yeah thank Um, you (laughs) thank you no you're very welcome (laughs) so I'm gonna draw it to a close um I ask people two questions at the end of every podcast. Um, answer them, interpret them however you see fit. So um, what scares you? What scares me is... Uh, there's a million things that scare me. I'm constantly... I mean, I'm not... Um, I suppose what scares me is not living because we... COVID and um, getting to a certain age, I have lost friends... My partner has lost some very close friends over the last few years. Life is so short, and the worst thing to do is not to have lived it. So I think what scares me is not is not to live life. Um, yeah, but there's loads of things I'm scared of. <laughs> That's a good one, though. Um, what brings you hope? Um, my immediate answer is my little boy. Um, I'm trying to think why he brings me hope. It's really great. Um, I don't know if this is, I'm just going to say what, I don't know, it was coming out of my brain. Do. At the moment. When you spend time with someone seeing the world fresh, then you feel a renewed sense of hope, I think, that he sees everything for the, there's so much he's seeing for the first time. Um, we've just done our first fam- big family adventure. We're trying to walk across the Canary Islands. And we've done half of it and we're going back to do the other half. We've, it's taken us six weeks. We're really slow with him. <laughs> He's only four. But we've done half of it. We're going to go and do the half. But even just, we live in Exmoor, and even just doing small stuff around our house and, and going for walks or going kayaking or whatever, going swimming in the sea is wonderful. But doing this big adventure with him and, and everything's fresh to him. And there's, there's just hope because it's really easy to get cynical. And I get a lot of climate anxiety around especially when you have a child, you're like, what are we leaving? What are we going to leave for them? 
you know, it's so terrifying. The world that I've been so privileged to see, and, and I have to admit, I've used a lot of flights for, which I now wouldn't do as many flights uh, because I, but I didn't have that information at the time, you know. Um, not that I'm saying people shouldn't fly at all. Yeah, I think we have to, there's a balance. But I, yeah, I suppose he just sees everything so fresh and it just makes you think there is hope. We can start again. We, there, is, there is a chance to reverse or change the, our path, not reverse, but to change our path, our humanity's path, I mean. But I don't know how to do that. I'm just chipping away at my own little corner. <laughs> That's all we can do. Contribute to the fight. Yeah, exactly. Ace, thank you so much. That was amazing. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk or follow along on Instagram at theadventurepodcast. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and is produced by Orla Murray. If you want to get in touch, then you can do so at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk and please do leave us an honest review on iTunes as the numbers help us reach a wider audience and we're genuinely interested in the feedback.